Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome back. I hope you had a fantastic Christmas. I really do. For those of you who were having a rough time, it does get better. I promise it gets better. You will forge new traditions. You will get through this. You know, next year will not be the same. I remember learning and taking notes actually on the notes app on my phone, uh, taking notes about what I wanted to remember for the next Christmas. So um, from me to you, give that a shot if there are things that you really feel like um, you want to remember so that you can take really good care of yourself next year. And if you had a fantastic Christmas, I am so happy. I'm so glad. And as we move into the new year, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, My book came out two days ago. (laughs) Have you gotten your copy of my book yet? Did you just go through one more Christmas that made you miserable and left you feeling like you just can't do this again? My book, The D Word, Making the Ultimate Decision About Your Marriage, is on sale everywhere. Please get yourself a copy. You may not be ready for all of the answers, but all of the information that you need in order to make the ultimate decision about your marriage is contained in that book. I promise. All right, switching gears here. Today I have with me a woman whose uh, her her book is coming out next week. Unbelievable. Dr. Marielle Bouquet is a Columbia University-trained psychologist, intergenerational trauma expert, and the author of the new book, Break the Cycle, a book that focuses on healing wounds of intergenerational trauma. Her clinical framework is holistic and infuses ancient and indigenous healing practices into a modern comprehensive therapeutic approach. She also provides healing workshops to Fortune 100 companies, including Google, Twitter, Capital One, Facebook. She lectures within the psychology department at Columbia University. Dr. Bouquet is widely sought out in her for her clinical expertise and trauma healing approach, and she has been featured on in all of the places like the Today Show, Good Morning America, ABC News. Let's just say she's an expert. Um, And her new book, Break the Cycle, I encourage everyone to order it. It's truly incredible, her take on intergenerational trauma. And this conversation that we have about intergenerational trauma is fantastic. So please, without further ado, here is Dr. Marielle Bouquet. Dr. Mariel Bouquet, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Um, as many of my listeners know, I talk about this all the time. Now there's a book, Break the Cycle. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Why don't you just start off with telling me uh, a little bit, telling uh, us a little bit about your book and how this came to be and how this kind of became your your specialty, your area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, uh, well, my book is called Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma, and it is a healing guide, a, a comprehensive healing guide that helps anyone that is in the process of wanting to break their own cycles, wanting to assume the identity of a cycle breaker and somebody who really kind of steps out of the shadows of emotional pain that has plagued their families for generations and wants to step into legacies of abundance and 
uh, different kinds of families, perhaps, and the ones that they came from. Um, this is the book, really, you know, to help facilitate that process. And a lot of this work really, it started off mostly in my own therapy room where, you know, I saw and heard of so many stories of people that had been in a lot of suffering and the suffering had actually looked a lot like the suffering they saw growing up. And we weren't necessarily naming this and we didn't have like language, even as clinicians for what was happening in the therapy room. And, you know, to take it even a step beyond that, like we didn't even have the tools to help people, Hmm. which was to me just a little bit mind boggling because so many people were coming in with these histories. Yeah. Right, right. Right. These patterns that are being repeated over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. It's amazing that they were not. So when was the first time that people started, that clinicians started to kind of put a name to this and start to understand that these are actual cycles? Actively, actively. What it wasn't even until maybe like three, four years. Yeah. Really? Because we had some scientific understanding of the fact that we have intergenerational trauma factors that have this biological genetic kind of element to it, but it wasn't being translated as of yet into the work itself in the therapy room. Like we had okay. epigenetics right. um, that was like entering the conversation. We had cellular biologists that were also, you know, depositing nuggets of wisdom as to, you know, our cellular biology and ways in which our stories remain kind of etched inside of our bodies. And there were all of these different ways in which conversations were happening inside of different separate fields of study. But it takes some time actually for that integration to then transpire into therapeutic work. Even trauma itself is very new. Trauma itself. It's crazy, Uh, right? Uh Crazy. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's sort of part of the, the quote legacy, right? But it is part of the cycle that you know, our parents weren't dealing with this at all, right? Our generation, we were kind of handed all this stuff and now we we know, <laughs> right? But we're doing the healing for generations who didn't have access to this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just, it uh, breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to have seen like my father-in-law who was a Vietnam vet and had so much PTSD that was just unnamed unspoken, you know, my mom who grew up in England during the war getting bombed every night, you know, the woman still can't sleep. (laughs) She's 82, Mm. you know, this is a cellular thing, right? There's like the cellular, there's the, there's, it's in our DNA, but then it's also behavioral repetitive patterns. So how do we, how do we work with both of those aspects or how do you, (laughs) or how do you work with them, break them down? Yeah, well, you know, it, I I can appreciate that you're bringing in both elements because intergenerational trauma is actually the only type of trauma that uh, is found at the intersection of our biology and our psychology. So there is that genetic element, but also just body element in which we understand that our bodies are kind of in this state of ongoing unrest and that mm-hmm. that unrest may look like, as you mentioned, insomnia, you know, that happens for decades. Um, there's also the psychological element, which is a lot of the, the behaviors and patterns and practices that get handed down family lines because they are passed on as the norm, right? Um, sometimes people, you know, may come from families where they're like, well, we're yellers, we yell at each other. And then, you know, once everyone's done yelling and, and, screaming their little hearts out, everybody's then calm. And then the mm-hmm. next storm hits, right? And then the, they're, but they're not realizing that these are cycles, not realizing that there are uh, patterns that reflect what we call abuse within that. And that those cycles are being recycled because no one's calling it out and saying, hey, actually, that's a manipulative strategy and it's something that is uh, unhealthy and just a, a way of you trying to get a result out of me when in reality you can just tell me I would like for you to do such and such 
Is that possible? There's a different avenue, right? But we haven't explored that because what we saw growing up was a manipulative strategy. We saw that it worked. And so we, in, in essence, subconsciously absorbed those behaviors. So there's both and, you know, biological and psychological implicated there. And so when we work with intergenerational trauma, it has to be from both, both ends. Mm-hmm. And it really takes something, right, to be triggered and then have the wherewithal to say, oh, I'm triggered. It would help me if you would <laughs> do X, right? If we could change this behavioral pattern, this cycle, right? Like it takes something to be able to stand outside of the trigger, the trauma, and name it, and then make a request for something that would help soothe it or heal it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that takes years of therapy, right? <laughs> like years, Years it of does. work. Yeah. And it also can be something that we do more intentionally and sometimes even quicker than years. Because the thing about the reason why it takes years is because therapy goes a little something like this. Tell me what brings you in today. The person <laughs> starts their story. <laughs> right? And then yeah. we get literally through a number of things before we even get to the root. Mm -hmm. We go through session after session after session until finally there's a peak and there's an aha moment. And sometimes that does come years later. When if we are more trained to ask the right questions, there's a likely chance that we'll get to the root a lot sooner Mm -hmm. and allow that person to then start working more intentionally on that root cause so that they can cut the trauma at the root and, and it won't grow more leaves, more, you know, more un- unhealthy patterns. Like all of that will be, you know, for the most part dissolved. So what kinds of questions do you, I mean, I don't know if it's individual or like it's case by case basis, obviously, but are there some more specific questions that you ask that gets to that quicker? You know, I'll take us through, for example, which I'm sure that many that are listening are familiar. I know that you are the adverse childhood experiences as an example, right? Mm -hmm. We have 10 questions that help us to understand 10 different elements of childhood adversity some being, you know, a parental figure that's been incarcerated, perhaps a tumultuous divorce, um, maybe, you know, the experience of abandonment, particularly by a caregiver, and a number of other categories. The ACEs questionnaire is typically handed over to a person with their intake forms so that they can fill it out. Not the best mechanism to actually help a person, like, really kind of, like, understand right, what's right. happening. Check a box. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Check a box and then forget about it. Not not the best approach. Right. However, something about the ACEs also is that the ACEs isn't as nuanced as we need it to be. Oh, it, it's it's so missing not. a lot. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, I was looking at it over a couple of like, just like last week and I was like, this doesn't address any, you know, like I would have a low ACEs score. I have mm-hmm. a lot of trauma, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Like, so yeah. yes, yes, lots, yeah. lots of missing nuance for sure. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't. Uh, you know, there. It, okay, so there are a number of things that is missing in the question that it seeks to ask, which is in essence, what happened to you, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then what I have learned through the studies that I've excavated in my research, particularly for this book, has been that. We understand that individuals who in their childhood had actually suffered childhood adversity, particularly maltreatment, have a greater risk and propensity to actually cause that same type of injury to their children. So if we understand that through the generations, there is this higher risk and higher propensity, then why are we not also identifying what happened to the people that came before us, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents. And so I started integrating questions into the ACEs. I developed this intergenerational ACEs quiz uh, questionnaire, um, whatever you may call it, that helped us to organize the information that we were then excavating to be more intergenerational. 
Awesome. But in addition to that, <laughs> there's still more. Like, well, but wait, there's more. <laughs> really, there's more. We don't. We don't live inside of a vacuum. We live in an entire society that has a number of different ways in which it can actually perpetuate trauma into our families and into our homes and our lives, our hearts. And so it became really important for me to also assess for what was happening around that person. An example that all of us can relate to is this person suffered through a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Another example could be this person was also you know, someone that suffered through the wildfires in California and they lost their home and they suffered, you know, economic impoverishment as a result because of, you know, just poor uh, insurance and, and, and they weren't able to really kind of restructure their lives or their home lives, right? And all of a sudden we have things that happened around them, things that happened as they were living in this world that weren't necessarily a perpetuation that happened from an individual, but they were natural disasters. They were, you know, environmental situations, things that happened that also caused the trauma. And so it became really important for me to, as I was trying to gather the data with each individual that I was working with around what happened, that the question became what happened through the generations. Because the question of what happened to you and only within these like 10 constructs didn't really help me with the people that I was working with that were like, well, that's not even what I came in for. Like that's in what my hurt isn't even listed here. So I, I don't even feel seen by this document. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that you created one. You know, this sort of goes to what something that you have a great uh, video on your Instagram about, um, you're talking about how there's like the buildup to the traumatic event. And then there's the, like the healing or the, the sort of the come down. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, you know, buildup, like there's a storm coming, there's a hurricane coming or whatever it is. And then there's the impact. And then there's the, the sort of decline, mm-hmm. but we are currently living in through so much that is like perpetual like there is no end mm-hmm. to the climate crisis except like, you know complete death and destruction right mm-hmm. like i mean not to make light of it but you know for real right there's no end to in sight to um you know the racial divide and crisis and uncovering of whites more and more white supremacy um mm-hmm. right there's no end to these things and so how do we, how does intergenerational trauma, first of all, play into that? Like, like how we're passing this down to our, <laughs> to our kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have an 18 year old who's living through all of this, right? So how does this sort of perpetual trauma, pl- like, how do we, how do we work with that? Like, we don't heal that. Mm-hmm. We're just living with it, Right. Yes and no. So like, uh, but it's such a solid question. And it's actually the first time that I've been asked this question, but it has, it isn't the first time I think about it because uh, I learned through um, some scholars who had actually like been very opposed to ideas about growing out of trauma because they were, they were talking about ways in which sometimes trauma is just so present that there's no growth out of it. The thing about trauma, right, is that, or a traumatic response, is that it, it, we're talking about the kinds of responses that are so heavy, sometimes debilitating, that they impact areas of our lives. For some of us, they impact our relationships. For some of us, it impacts our work life and our capacity to focus. For some of us, it impacts, you know, how we parent. Um, and so forth and so on. Like there are different areas of our lives that suffer as a result. We can be in a world that is still very much on fire and not be on fire ourselves. Even if we are suffering from the fires that the world is continuing to, you know, kind of like throw gasoline at. And so that's what, that's the, the general premise of like what I hope people can gather from my work is that even when we come from long lines of pain, and while we're still seeing pain happening around us and especially being more globalized and more visual for us, 
that there is opportunity for us to also continue to work within ourselves to embody the world in a way where it doesn't bring us so down that we plummet into deep depressions, which is a lot of what is happening right now for a lot of individuals, which is why we're suffering a global mental health crisis where yeah. people are like, what is the point? Children were actually asked in, uh, in New York state, I believe it was, or this may have been uh, the surgeon general's actual like a uh, report they did a study and in, within the study, they actually asked open-ended questions to children, adolescents specifically, about why they believe that they were in essence like experiencing so much of a mental health decline. And some of them talked about the hopelessness that they feel about the world that they exist in. And some of that was tied to climate change. The, the thing about that is, is that we're talking about an emotion, right? The world is still doing what the world is going to do, but the emotion is, or, or the exper emotional experience is hopelessness. Mm -hmm. So for a person like myself, that's, you know, a psychologist, I go directly there. I go into, well, how do we help the children that are in our world build hope and feel like they have some sense of agency over the world that they have to exist in? so that they don't feel like they, the world is just happening to them and the world is imploding around them. And they feel like they have some level of stamina and resilience to get through the circumstances that are around them. So that's why, you know, the, the work can be like directed in that direction. So that even while we understand that, you know, things are happening, that we can still survive them. I like the idea that we can teach our kids and ourselves that when things feel like they're out of our control, that we actually do have some agency and that we can find the places to have agency. I mean, I just sort of think about, obviously, for my audience and divorce, you know, their kids often feel completely out of control. They have mm -hmm. no agency. They have no say in anything that's happening. They feel like the divorce is happening to them, mm -hmm. right? But what ways can we find to give them a little bit of agency, right? They get to maybe decorate their new room. They get to, if they're old enough and it's appropriate, go and do some house hunting with the parent who's going to be moving, right? Like I, I like to encourage people to give their kids some, some piece of agency in this for this exact reason. So yes. thank, thank you for validating that. Yes, I, I love that you do that. That's so essential. Um, it's essential also for kids to just feel like they have a voice and a say, and that's just really fundamental to our human need that we can feel seen and heard by the people around us and especially by the people that love us. Yes, yes. I do that with my clients for holiday traditions too, right? We're forging new holiday traditions and people get so stressed out about like, I've got to create these new, these new traditions for my kids. And I said, well, why don't you create them with your kids? What do they want? Mm -hmm. They could want something completely random and like crazy and wacky and like, how fun, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right? To give them the mm -hmm. say in that. Yeah. I love that. And now for a quick word from our sponsor, the all new fully revised, should I stay or should I go? After three years of this program existing in the world and changing women's lives, I decided to give it a full makeover. The all-new version has all-new videos, a podcast-like audio stream if you want to take the work on the go, and completely updated resources for deepening your learning. The program consists of six core modules, the first of which is Who Are You?, this is the section in which you dig deeply into your own personal development and get in touch with your inner guide, slay your inner critics, mine for values, and learn how to set healthy boundaries. The second module is how you learn to love and helps you understand your attachment style, love languages, and how to properly love and care for the most important person in all of this, yourself. Module three is called, Why Are Women So Exhausted?, and breaks down some of the issues around toxic masculinity and male entitlement, the myth of being a stay-at-home mom, and answers the question, he's fine. Why can't I just be happy? Module four is all about understanding abuse 
and includes videos on trauma bonds, understanding the cycles of abuse, particularly how they play out in your own relationship, and addresses addiction, infidelity, and mental illness. Module 5 is all about healing and moving forward and includes videos about therapy, couples therapy, healing from betrayal, emotional regulation, and grief. This section also includes my 90-minute workshop, Tackling Codependence, as well as my signature relationship inventory that will help you gain complete clarity on all the parts of your marriage and figure out what's his and what's yours. And module six answers the question, is the grass really greener on the other side? With in-depth videos on dating, cultural and religious isolation, and what happens if you end up alone forever? Spoiler, you probably won't. Whether you decide to stay or go, this program will set you up for a lifetime of clarity and fulfillment. And if you've already decided to go, the program will help you unpack all that's happened and help you heal so that you can move forward without repeating the same mistakes that got you here in the first place. This program is priced super low at just $697. And if you use the code PODCAST, when you check out, you'll get $50 off the full price. What are you waiting for? You have been agonizing with this decision for long enough. It's time to finally know, should you stay or should you go? And now back to our episode family trauma and the intergenerational trauma contributes to our intimate relationships and who we choose as a partner, how we are making these choices. And these are the, these are the cycles that I talk about all the time, right? Like we are repeating the same relationship patterns over and over again, because there's a blueprint. We were given a blueprint, right? So Um, Can you talk a little bit from the psychologist standpoint about how the, how family trauma contributes to these choices and the intimate relationship dynamics? Absolutely. You know, there is this thing, a phenomenon, an experience called repetition compulsion. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is basically that we tend to repeat what feels familiar and feels kind of strangely comforting, even if it is actually not good for us. It is why we go right back into situations with intimate partners that we understand are likely not to work out, but we just need to be in that place of comfort. It's also why it's really hard for some people to extract themselves from relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. They feel like the relationship is comforting because it feels like home. And home was a place that embodied a lot of relational chaos. Right. So they know no other way. And they also feel like if they are left without this relationship, they're left without a home. It can become very existential. And so it it's part of the subconscious reason why we go back into relationships or go into relationships that fit a certain pattern because we start getting all those fuzzy feelings around these people because they feel like the people that we love back home. Mm-hmm. And it is why it's so incredibly important and why I can appreciate conversations like this that actually give an opening to an understanding around cycles of abuse, ways in which unhealthy patterns, you know, what they look like and how they can burgeon inside of our relationships, um, the ways that they can become a part of just the, the general way that people interact with each other in our homes. It's important for us to have these dialogues because when we're not aware of it, we're not going to be able to actually fix it. Mm-hmm. I always mm-hmm. say we cannot heal what we cannot see. Yeah, if, it, if it's invisible to us because it's so much of the norm that it just feels like status quo, it's not going to be something that we're going to be able to extract, actually seek to understand, see within ourselves. All of this requires an analysis, right? We're not going to analyze anything that you can't see or that you don't feel like needs, you know, to be, to be, um, released or done away with. We have to first acknowledge something's up, that something is causing disruption in my life. The disruption is making its way into my relationship. 
It is destroying my myself. It's destroying my family. Mm-hmm. Something needs to change, and I need to reconfigure the way that I approach relationships so that it doesn't mirror everything that I've learned since childhood. I'm reminded as you were talking of um, I used to when I before my divorce, we were in couples therapy and we were in an imago couples group, and. Um, we also did uh, individual imago, you know, couples work, but we were also in a group and and the the leaders of the group would say, you know, individual therapy kills marriages. <laughs> like mm-hmm. imago is the only way to save a marriage and that individual therapy kills a marriage. And And I'm, as you were talking, I was thinking in a sense, like, yes, healing my personal trauma from my childhood and that imprinting right now makes the relationship feel completely like it doesn't fit anymore. Right. And that's actually a good thing, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. If if I'm healing my trauma and now this thing that I thought I recognized as comfort, I have seen and identified as trauma or abuse. Yes. I'm now going to move away from that relationship. Right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and thank God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah. Bad relationships thrive off of lack of awareness. Don't they though? Yeah, they do. And that's <laughs> a part of why, you know, some people will have a friend that'll be like, why do you put up with that? What is, you know, like, and they'll be so like, just shocked that you're in the type of relationship that you're in. Mm-hmm. And for you, it just, you know, you just can't see it the way that they do. There's this That's disparate right. way of seeing it because you yeah. don't carry the awareness around how it's impacting you. Right. So when you get into that therapeutic alliance with your therapist and, and you start forming new ways of looking at your life and looking at uh, what can form peace for you and that person no longer fits that frame because they, they never really did. Yeah, it is going to cause a disruption. And very often what tends to happen to that other person is that they feel attacked by your healing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And this is why they avoid going to therapy with you or on their own, right? They don't, they don't want the curtain pulled back because it, it then it, rem- it removes their power and control over <laughs> you. Exactly. The other thing I was thinking about when you were talking about that is that there's, there's like this when it's the trauma that we experience as ch- as children from the people who were meant to love us, right? We we're sort of told and assumed that they're, they're your mother, they love you, they're your father, they love you, they're your sister, brother, whatever, they love you, but they're also treating me poorly. They're 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 you know hurting me. Our children's brains now conflate these two things right? So abuse equals love. And that's why it feels comfortable. That's why it feels good when we meet Mm -hmm. someone who's like, I love you and they're treating me bad. Oh, okay. They do. (laughs) Right. That makes Mm -hmm. sense. And it's our healing that pulls those two things apart. Right. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's, That's so beautifully stated. And, 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 you know, the other side of that, which I think you're also implicitly saying is that the, the, going back into these kinds of relationships that that have both of those elements integrated within them creates a stronger bond but it's a trauma bond mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. is you know it, it reinforces right. itself because it feels so familiar and every time that you know you try to pull away but then rubber band right back to this person um, what tends to happen as you rubber band back is that you start experiencing the the potency and the magneticism of that trauma bond. Yes, mm-hmm. right, right. The dopamine rush, the all of the adrenaline, all of the right excitement of the the love bond, the whole cycle, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's uh, it's so incredibly, it's so intoxicating, like literally. It is. It is. What can be detoxifying is <laughs> actually ha- armoring up, knowing mm-hmm. the signs, knowing yourself. It's knowing. It's a lot of knowing. 
you know, and, and a lot of that knowing also even comes as you heal, then you start having aha moments like, oh my goodness. And then you integrate that knowledge into your life and then you great, grow in greater insight and it just spirals upward instead of that downward spiral that you were in before. Yes. Yes. I love that. I love that. So like speaking of that, right? Like we are, when we're trying to like break the cycle of trauma in our lives and we want to build healthier relationships and like we're, we're gaining that knowledge and understanding so that we can point it out so that, so that when it happens, we go, Oh, there it is again. Or, ew, this actually feels really uncomfortable. Why am I uncomfortable right now? Right. So, what is the process? I mean, obviously, it's, it could be a lifelong process for some, but what is the process? How do we begin that journey of healing? The very start of healing, I always say, has to start somewhere where, you know, people tend to become really shocked at where I say to start because more often than not, where people want to start, is in digging through the layers of how trauma has shown up in their lives and their families' lives and the ways in which trauma is being represented in their own personal lives at that very moment. And the latter is, of course, really understandable because very often people want to really extract themselves from these relationships or these environments that are causing them harm. And that's, of course, invited and, and understood. However, with the healing process, we always have to go back to the foundation of foundations, which is the body. We have to go back into settling the body, into settling the nervous system and helping that person really find a healthy home inside of their own mind and body so that then the relationships that they start engaging in start reflecting that health. But beyond that, you know, even prior to getting all the way, you know, to the point where we're actually getting a person into healthier relationships, that grounding that we do, some of those practices that are going to be really integral into like, you know, integrating into day-to-day life are also put in place because when we start digging through your family tree and we start like, you know, peeling back the curtains and like exposing things, Mm -hmm. that stuff can, can get really heavy. Yeah. And if you don't have some sort of a system in place to actually help you then regulate, then enter a state of relaxation within your nervous system after it's been kind of a little bit fired up from the, the information that you're uncovering. If we don't have that system in place, it's going to be a really, really hard, heavy, grief stricken to the umpteenth degree type of journey that you may actually abandon prematurely because you'll say this feels horrible. I don't want too much. It's It's too too much. much. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Right. If you're just triggering, 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 and there's no place to go hide under the covers that feel safe or whatever it is. Right. And so you're talking really about somatic work, right? You're Mm -hmm. talking about because as we know, trauma lives in our bodies, not our brains. Right. So you're talking about really doing mindful grounding what what sorts of tools do you work with your clients on? I use an, a multitude of tools, but, but the one that I use the most is sound bath meditation. Mm. And for anyone who's not familiar, it's like uh, it's an actual Best. sound emission or sound medicine that's emitted through these like sound bowls that is a part of Tibetan practice and Buddhist practice. And um, but I, I use it outside of that context in a more therapeutic form. And those sounds actually emit these micro vibrations and these frequencies that produce a relaxation. Um, both on the, the mind and the body. And so it, it's really, um, a practice that has been like very grounding for a lot of the people that I've worked with. And it's also a practice that I use in my own personal life. Mm. But when, you know, I, I engage in like meditation, imagery based exercises, journaling, sound bath meditation within my practice itself. But then I also offer some, if you may, like homework, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for people to also integrate into their day to day lives and like, you know, do deep breathing do humming, which actually helps to stimulate the ventral vagal nerve, which is implicated in like helping us to, to feel, you know, more relaxed. 
also the, you know, the experience of uh, rocking can be really therapeutic and, and relaxing for folks. And so I also help anybody that I'm working with to start integrating some of these into their day-to-day lives so that they feel more at ease and they can experience very like global grounding before we even get into the digging work and start peeling back the layers. I love that. I love sound baths, by the way. I mean, <laughs> I it, it is it is magic. You know, it's really you can feel and because they're different tones for each bowl, right? There's mm-hmm. the different megahertzes that are happening, right? I don't really know the science of it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you can feel that like the vibration just so it it becomes cellular. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. And I love that this like, you know, woo-woo shit is now <laughs> getting mm-hmm. to be like actually scientifically proven and to be used in a therapeutic process, not just in sort of, you know, more woo circles, right? That like this is mm-hmm. actually in therapy now. I think it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many elements of, you know, what we have previously kind of discounted and and just kind of cast it off as not being helpful that that is being reintegrated. I mean, look at the whole psychedelic movement, right? Like before we would have been like, who are those people going into a mountainous region in Peru, like drinking some strange liquid, right? When now it's, it's actually being integrated into the the, the Western medical model. I mean, there's a, a yoga is another example, right? Mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. the, there's just so many ways in which these practices um, before a number of years ago were not even thought of as therapeutic. And now we're seeing their impact and effect. It's incredible. It's incredible. And so much of this is based on science that may not be Western science, right? But even like, I was shocked to find out just a couple of years ago that all of the chakras actually align with glands in your body, like they're yeah. actual glands. Uh-huh. And so, right. They're not just chakras and like they're glands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're, when we're healing them and stimulating, we're actually stimulating a gland in the body, right? These things are all connected in these they really, are. really cool ways. Yeah. yeah. Even tapping EFT tapping, which mm-hmm. I also do in my practices, um, is, is connected to meridians and those meridians are connected to certain organs and they help us also to release, you know, some of the blockages in those organs. So people look at someone that's tapping into their face and collarbone and they're like, that's silly. Not yeah. realizing that we have nerve endings and, and meridian points mm-hmm. that connect to different parts of our bodies that then are able to release some of the pent up tension, stress, and even, you know, other things like bacteria, inflammation, disease that's stored in these areas of our bodies. It's so, it's so interesting. I remember, and I'm the kind of person who has to understand why, right? I need that. So when tapping, when I first heard about tapping, maybe like 10 years ago, and I was like, nobody was explaining why I was like, you want me to do what? Like, Mm -hmm. I need to know why. And I was not finding any of the information about why they were just telling me to tap on my face and my collarbones. And I was like, I, this sound, this is stupid. (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, as time went on and you learn like, oh no, 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 the meridian, it's like, actually, I need the science. I'm a, I'm a, but why girl. (laughs) And as soon as I know why, then I can totally and fully get on board. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I totally understand. And I am a why person myself. So Mm -hmm. understanding the why really helps me and helps to ground me in an understanding of what I'm doing. So I get it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we start with that, right? We start with grounding in ourselves Mm -hmm. and then we have a place to go back to when the shit starts <laughs> boiling yes. over. Yes. 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 Right. So then we can open up some of those doors into the, the intergenerational trauma that, or, or personal trauma, whatever the trauma is. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, we get into the phase that we in essence call like integration, right? So it's like all the things that we've learned, both how we regulate and all the things patterns that have been there, we start integrating that into our lives. So as an example, you know, a mom who would have maybe traditionally like yelled at their kid whenever, you know, their kid would be asking for like just one toy whenever they went, you know, over to a store. And and she would 
because her entire body would just upsurge and she would have all this tension build up whenever they would say that and just kind of like lash out and that was their nervous system response. Instead, we would actually talk through alternatives. So she would already have pre-programmed alternatives of how to respond, but also work with her nervous system to learn how to regulate in those moments so that she can buy herself two to three seconds of response time. Mm-hmm. And, and it allows her an opportunity to be reflective about what to say next that can actually help her to have a connection, a bonding connection to her child rather than one that disconnects them. So yeah. that's the integration work. It just like kind of like is nuanced in that way, depending mm-hmm. on the needs of the person and the, the people in their lives. But it, it starts forming in that direction. Yeah. And in that way, you know, like they're doing something different than what their mother may have done. Right. And then they're breaking the cycle. Right. Mm-hmm. That's it. <laughs> because and when you when you are grounded within yourself, right, like that two to three second lead time, right, you're 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 able to n- notice what's happening in your body as opposed to it just sort of taking over. Right. It's that it's that lag time of being able to be objective about what's happening. Yes. Right. And observe. Mm -hmm. Like a, it's a buffer between stimulus, mommy, just one toy, please. You know, maybe like throwing a fit and response, which is Mm -hmm. I'm going to respond in this way. I'm going to, not buy you a toy right now, but we can talk about it at home rather than, didn't I just tell you, you know, you know and mm-hmm, just like mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. kind of disconnecting language that can happen in that moment. I want to go back to something that you said before we wrap up, um, something that you said, which is relevant to this, that you said at the beginning of our conversation about then, you know, when you're, that they, dis, you know, through research discovered that children who were abused tend to go on to become abusers, Right. And for, for many people, they hear that and they're like, but that makes literally no sense, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. But I also think this is exactly what we're talking about in this response and, and yelling, right? We're teaching this disconnection or whatever it is, or this conflation of abuse and love or whatever it is. Can you just sort of talk a little bit more about how when something feel, felt so awful to us, we end up than perpetuating it and doing it to our children. So the studies actually, you know, they, they were able to help us understand that those parents are at greater risk of actually doing the very same things as parents. They learned parenting in a, from a place of hurt and pain, and they, they have a greater risk of unconsciously doing the same thing. Although some parents by way of intuition, they're like, I will never do this to my child. And they actually act opposite. But, um, you know, the, the, the ways that this happens is because one, the invisibilizing nature of like normalization of these kinds of patterns. Like one example is like, you know, um, the normalization, especially in our generations and generations prior where we would normalize like hitting kids pretty aggressively oh my God, for their right? behaviors mm-hmm. in ways that were kind of barbaric. Oh my God. And I mean, yeah. 70s kid here. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Like uh-huh. we all have those scars. Right. And so it's Ugh. like parents then did not, they were just kind of doing the parenting that they were taught. They didn't really understand in the ways that our generation now understands this can actually leave long-standing wounds that then make this person incredibly tender for the rest of their lives, that they become people inside of their relationships that don't really ever feel safe, and that it also leads them to potentially normalize this behavior and perpetuate it onto their children. And all of that happens because there isn't a consciousness. There isn't a collective conscious, meaning that all of us agree on this planet, we do not hit kids, right? Like we all agree, Mm -hmm. we don't whip out belts and incite terror and take, you know, hangers or whatever we may find Mm -hmm. and like instill this like corporal punishment that is deeply wounding to a child. We collectively, our collective conscious says we don't do that. And then individually within our families, we can say that's not a thing, but we wouldn't have that ability 
if collectively we say, no, it's okay to hit kids because we wouldn't know to step out of that mind frame to say, this is not okay. The same right. goes for our families. If that's what we saw growing up, that's literally in, ingrained in our understanding of how we are to change a child's behavior. It's not by asking them to do things differently. It's by forcing them to do so through corporal punishment. So when we step out and break cycles, we, we have to go into those wounds and have an understanding of like, okay, well, how was this message passed on? And what is the alternate message that you can leave as a legacy? That's so beautifully said. It's just so beautifully said. I was this morning was listening to NPR. They were doing a, a story about juvenile detention centers in was it Tennessee? It was the guy who runs the place that they're trying to get out who, you know, longs for the old days when he could lock them up in solitary and whip them and they didn't do anything bad. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, we've come so far. Thank God, right? There's so many ways in which we have not, but this is one area that we have come so far in understanding trauma. And um, I'm so excited for your book. Can you tell our audience where they can find your book, where they can find you and all the amazing goodness that you have to offer? Thank you. Yes. My book can be found anywhere books are sold and uh, also on my website, which is drmariellebouquet.com. And there I also have, uh, well, I'm mostly on LinkedIn these days. So my LinkedIn is linked there. Um, and anything that I may be coming up with can be found there as well. Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. It was such a great conversation. And I know it's going to be really um, enlightening to my audience. And I wish you the absolute best with the launch of this book. Thank you so much. I wish you all the same. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.